Hi everyone, Heart Energy's Doug Permian Basin Conference in Fort Worth is right around the corner. We're celebrating 100 years in the basin. To give you an idea of information shared at our events, we've compiled various episodes where you can hear some of last year's presentations. To check out the agenda for this year's conference and to register, go to heartenergyconferences.com. On this panel, we will have QEP and Colgate Energy, but first up, we will be hearing from Daniel Rawling, Chief Operating Officer at Ajax Resources. Following the sale of Ajax Resources, 25,000 acres in the Northern Midland Basin to Diamondback Energy for $1.24 billion last October, Daniel and the team are currently working deals to build Ajax 2. Daniel began his career with EP Energy and worked multiple operations and team lead roles, ultimately leading the Permian team. Daniel is active in SBE and has served on the boards of SBE Young Professionals, YP, and multiple charities following his graduation from Texas A&M. So with that, please help me welcome Daniel Rawling to the podium. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I'd like to take some time just to uh, thank the Heart Energy team. And uh, you know, in our industry, we have a lot of conferences that we can go to. Um, but this one and the whole Doug series really in general just provides a uh, incredible platform for us to uh, really connect operators and, and professionals alike, uh, you know, to solve the problems that we have on a day-to-day -day basis. So thank you and thank the team. Um, thank everybody for allowing me to come in and talk. You know, my presentation actually uh, has been given by just about every other uh, presenter, so it'll be short and sweet. Uh, you know, but really we want to talk a little bit about Ajax and who we are, what we did, uh, what we're looking to do, and, and really what drives value uh, today in this, you know, different, different never-changing industry. Um, let's see if I can progress here. Okay, so uh, Ajax Resources, uh, we're a team that's been together for the better part of 15 years. Um, you know, and really we've uh, been operationally active through the lower 48 uh, since the Haynesville time uh, in the resource and shale plays. We've got over 500 wells underneath our belt uh, operationally, uh, you know, from the drill complete production side of the equation. And we've, uh, you know, we really started, again, operating, you know, in that Haynesville uh, in a legacy position. But Brent Smolik and Clay Carroll and Dane Whitehead being from the uh, Burlington Resources kind of genre and, and had that culture of operational efficiency and, and drive uh, really instilled that in us and, and found that, you know, the Haynesville was an opportunity for repeatability. Um, you know, we had a diverse asset base, but the Haynesville gave us the opportunity to put repeatability in place and highly economic rock. Uh, you know, they got out in front of it and at, out front of that and asked our team to go and find the next one. Uh, so, you know, we start scoping around our, you know, diverse asset base down in TGC in the Texas Gulf Coast, uh, South Texas. And of course, the Eagleford starts lighting up like a Christmas tree. So. Uh, you know, at that point, 2007, 2008, um, our team with Grant Evans had, and, and his guys had mapped all the way through, you know, what was an ever-changing rock from dry gas to condensate into an oil window. Uh, and we really liked some goat pasture called Carnes County. Uh, unfortunately, we were a gas player at the time, and so we really focused on that condensate and, and uh, dry gas window. Uh, but, you know, fast forward about two years later, and 20,000 barrels of oil online uh, and, and operational efficiencies being had in the Eagleford, and we get that knock on the door uh, to go find some of that oil stuff that we didn't originally want back in 2007 and 2008. Uh, so again, our team uh, headed up the Valverde using Delta Log R and other scoping techniques and, and came over the uh, ozone arch and uh, teamed up to, uh, to find what was the Southern Midland Basin in a play that was really being developed in a, in a vertical sense uh, with just a couple of horizontal players. You know, uh, the edict was, let's go find about at least 100,000 acres. Uh, let's find it contiguous. Let's have it compete for capital against the Eagleford and an oil, sh and an oil shale. Uh, and, and by the way, let's get in for under 1,000 bucks or so an acre. Uh, so after we asked what color unicorn that they wanted, uh, we actually ended up, again, finding it with that 200,000-ish acres down in the southern Midland. Um, so we, we ended up putting uh, 350 wells down there. Uh, roughly, and, and really grew that asset base from zero to over 35,000 barrels of oil a day before we exited that and, and found the opportunity and joined up with the Ajax Resources team. Um, you know, our management team has been 
fairly active in the M&A space. We've uh, looked at a, a little over $7 billion worth of assets uh, and closed on almost $3 billion uh, here in the Permian. Obviously, with us uh, closing our Diamondback and, and really being active in the M&A space today, that number's grown substantially from what we've looked at. Uh, i tell you, it's, it's a very, very interesting time in our industry with what we're seeing you know, week over week, the opportunities that are presenting themselves and continue to, uh, you know, present themselves to us and, and the other teams that are out there looking. So quick look uh, at the Northern Midland Basin. You know, this was uh, 2015 uh, when this was acquired by Kelso and, and Forrest Wiley and the Ajax team. Uh, you know, the, the, really in 2015, at the time of purchase, we had a lot of similar headwind. Uh, from a financial side. Uh, maybe not all for the same reasons, but you know, you look at the capital and the debt, uh, the equity markets, they were either headed for the hills or they were already there. Um, you know, so being able to put together a program and, and get in and purchase this, and not only purchase, but then put together a delineation program was, uh, was pretty substantial. Uh, you know, what we saw coming in and, and kind of from, from our aspect was there was a lot of resource there. Um, you know, there were multiple benches that weren't really being played yet that we thought we could delineate. Uh, not only delineate, but that would compete for capital with the primary target, which was the uh, lower spray at the time. You know, so that's really what the team was able to do. We came in uh, from north, south, east, and west. We're able to put down, you know, uh, a great wells in the lower spray in the Wolf Camp A, and in the middle spray uh, We were able to do so, and, and at the same time, you know, really reduce our operational, uh, you know, and, and cycle time. So, you know, you look at what we were, we were at over 40 days drilled as uh, spud to rig release. We were pumping, uh, or pardon me, we took that down to, you know, under 20 days. You look at our pump times increasing from 15, 16, 17 hours a day. Uh, just overall LOE being dropped from that $7 to $8 down to about 4 bucks a BOE. Uh, and, you know, we've, we started to really develop a, uh, a capital structure that, you know, we could get behind. You know, we can, we can go and, and reproduce this, and we can build on the successes that we were having. Um, you know, what we couldn't do is we couldn't take, you know, the, the, we had dropped from $1,300 a foot kind of down to that 900-ish. Um, but what we couldn't do is get below that because we didn't have the scale. We've heard a lot about scale today and what you need to be able to, uh, you know, to get things across the finish line. You know, for us, the next step was really uh, obtaining scale both from an acreage standpoint and from an operational standpoint. Uh, when I say that we had, you know, several deals in the pipeline to grow from that 25,000 kind of net acres up to 30, 35, 40,000 net acres, uh, to be able to take our PDP asset and, and grow that from 15,000 barrels of oil a day up over 25,000 barrels, barrels of oil a day all in 2019. You know, kudos to, to Travis and Case and, and the Diamondback team. Obviously, they've got an exceptional uh, execution profile and, and, and just great guys on that team. Uh, but what they were able to see is that they could parlay both ours and their uh, well results with their capital structure and really realize a ton of value day one. So uh, they did that, and we worked together through October of 18 to close you know, what was a, a great story and a, and a great deal for Ajax Resources. So from a timing standpoint, I'm going to skip this one, but we can talk more about it in the Q&A. It's really kind of that life cycle of how operations change, um, you know, across the, the different plays and across, uh, you know, how acreage is thought of uh, both in an execution and uh, an M&A space. You know, I think, you know, today we're, we live kind of in that, in that uh, tier that is development really past the, the early delineation, but really into full development mode. And just what that means, you know, for what, what deals are going to take place and what are, what's actually going to get across the finish line. Um, you know, I'll concentrate here because, again, this has been talked about a lot by some of my previous uh, uh, cohorts. But what we see is that, you know, yes, the industry is changing from an investment standpoint. We're being demanded uh, different things, and, and rightfully so, is we've been phenomenally good at growing uh, and sometimes growth for growth's sake. Uh, but actually being transparent and being able to show our investment community, whether that be shareholders all the way to LPs, to equity, uh, to, you know, private family offices, you know, being able to show actual returns on a program that happened several years back or last year, uh, it, it's been murky at best. You know, we haven't been as good at that. You know, and so it's caused a little bit of that distrust that we've heard of from other speakers and, and allowed or, you know, pushed everybody from the biggest publics down to those, you know, small family businesses and everybody in between to have to live within capital or have to, you know, really strive to value. 
Um, you know, so for us, we think all that starts with a development plan. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about you know, uh, not only the development plan, but the execution and the results that we have to be able to show. Um, and then what's important as we navigate these headwinds. So for us, we think, and we've always thought through a value perspective that you know, it starts and ends with the reservoir. Everything we do gets back to the G&G &G and the reservoir aspect. Everything else we do is kind of secondary uh, from that point. We've got to be able to you know, get out there and put together wells that are going to compete for capital across anybody's disciplines, across anybody's acreage. So what we mean by that is continually driving the operational efficiencies uh, while we increase our EURs and IPs. Um, you know, as we do that, you know, starting with that subsurface, we're going to get a rate of return model that, that uh, will compete for capital and allow us to go out and really, you know, at that point, uh, be confident in not only getting scale from an acreage and a capital profile standpoint, but also go out there and be able to put down dollars in, in the uh, infrastructure. So, you know, scale comes in a lot of different aspects, but you know, we tend to think about from the PDP side, you know, giving yourself, whether you're trying to compete for capital or whether you're trying to, you know, create that financial backbone where you've got a borrowing base, uh, or if you're trying to be that acquisition target, you know, and that kind of one-to-one -one ratio of one BOE per one net acre. Um, again, we said it all starts with G&G. &G. Uh, for us, it doesn't matter kind of what, what we originate with, but we have a, a pretty robust list that we try to go out and obtain and then put into our models. All that gets uh, aggregated, and ultimately, you know, we use it on a day-to-day -day basis. So we're using it to go bench by bench. We're using it to go section by section. We like to think it's all, or say it's all, homogeneous, but we know it's not. Um, and so we really have to dig in and from the G&G &G and reservoir side before we get to the operations, understand what's going to drive productivity and ultimately IRR. So, uh, you know, and, and as we do that, um, we at Ajax are uh, utilizing our model, like I said, on a day-to-day, -day, even hour-to-hour -hour basis as we're in geosteering. We use it uh, to pick our landing zones and then to stay within that 10-foot window. Uh, we use it, you know, once we get past the drilling standpoint to uh, set up our completions, our perforations, and our pump designs. And then ultimately, upon look back, use it to optimize our programs. This is, you know, kind of, we, we didn't talk a whole lot about it, but as you get into, you know, whether or not you're going to do full-scale development in a cube-style, container-style, uh, you know, single well or pad development, it's all about value and being transparent, like we said, to our investors, no matter if it's shareholders or LPs or equity, uh, you know, being able to say, this is what's going to happen, uh, this is how it's going to happen, go do it and then show the results. Uh, you know, and, and so when we look at uh, what was going on kind of in that northern Midland, the Permian Basin, we had a lot of operators that were attacking single bench, uh, and we were able to see, you know, again, going back to the earth model and starting with the G&G &G and the reservoir, that we had the ability to turn it on its head and go to container math. Uh, one plus one plus one wasn't going to equal three for us. We were going to get a lot more out of the rock by being able to break down those vertical barriers and get into something that was going to really be prolific, not only from a production standpoint, but kind of turn the, the rate of returns and our ability to, uh, to go do some special things with the asset on its head. Uh, and that's what we did. So this represents a, uh, basically, you know, the, in blue, the offset, uh, three wells, relatively the same lateral length, relatively the same completion style, uh, all in, like I said, in kind of a planar model uh, where we came in and, and decided it's going to be important for us to be able to test and then de delineate and ultimately develop a, uh, you know, three bench design. I'm going to move forward if I can move backward. So... Uh, here we go. I'm going to go to OFI real quick because it kind of parlays into that. We heard from, from Parker and, and some of the other guys about OFI or offset frack interference. But I think it's truly dynamic. I mean, and as you get into how we're going to develop, uh, you know, again, whether it be that true cube development, which few are able to do because of the capital outlay that's necessary uh, and the time before we see that first dollar return, um, you know, ultimately, you know, to either container or single wall development. Uh, you know, you're either going to pay the piper up front, we're going to either, you know, have lower early time IPs, and we can prove that from basin to basin, from well to well, all the way across the lower 48, uh, or you're going to create parent-child relationships that then we're going to, again, have to come in and model, you know, what we do differently to be able to ultimately get the same results out of the child wells or similar rates of return out of the child wells as what we did in the parents. It's... Uh, you know, it's, it's not real intuitive. Uh, you know, you can see here these are different areas, 
you know, miles away. Um, but they react very, very similarly in the sense that, and we've done it, you know, north, south, east, and west all over the Permian as we look at it, where, you know, you have wells that are right next to the wellbore that may not go offline. Uh, and 3,000 feet away, you've got, you're knocking off wells. Uh, again, it's dominated by those natural fractures. And ultimately, if we're not careful as professionals as we evaluate it, we're going to miss it, the impacts of that OFI, and uh, not only from a productivity but a cash flow standpoint. Gets back to that transparency and doing what we say we're going to do. So, just to, you know, we all know it's out there. Investors now know and are very, very cognizant, you know, looking for what is the parent child effect going to be and what is OFI going to do. Uh, so, as professionals, we really have to be cognizant and get into, uh, on our planning side, you know, uh, be able to plan for this and know what's going to happen. So real quick going back, so it's, it's not a fluke, uh, you know, we do this consistently. Again, our approach is really to take a look at, you know, from a P10, P90, P50 approach, uh, you know, and, and optimize year over year. Our current year's P50 is always targeted. We, we take a hard look at what we did on last year's P10 uh, and put together our capital deployment all based around how we get back to last year's P10. Uh, if we had the lines kind of in between, what you would see is that it's up and to the right. Uh, consistently, and you've heard it from other operators, and, and as an industry, we've done a good job of having down into the right operational efficiencies, you know, better days, better cycle times, overall better costs. When you parlay it with this, uh, you know, you're, you're going to get to IRR profiles that will compete with anybody's capital in the top quartile. Um, you know, going back to uh, some things that have been said by, again, uh, you know, some of the other presenters, we think that we're going to have to live these for a long time. Uh, we're ready to and, and you know, bring on the challenge of operating these assets for a long period of time. Uh, you know, we enjoy the, the uh, thought process and the planning that goes into you know, field development. And I think that's what we all have got to be really, really keen on is how do we get in and develop this for the life of the field? Uh, you know, utilizing the G&G &G and the reservoir models and having confidence that you know, tangible results are going to equal or be uh, you know, very close to what we modeled uh, originally give us the ability to spend upfront and, you know, really uh, a lot of dollars upfront um, to be able to put assets in the ground, tangible, you know, non-drill capital into the ground to, uh, to, you know, take our LOE and take our unit cost metrics down and ultimately pay ourselves, you know, uh, multiple times over. So you see it here, I mean, from the north to the southern Midland Basin, we, uh, you know, it's a lot of numbers, but basically what it says is that, you know, it, it's something that we have to be uh, aware of and we have to start planning for on day one. So with that, uh, I'd like to thank everybody again. Uh, looking forward to Q&A, and I'll turn the, uh, turn the mic back over. Thank you, Daniel. Um, next up, I'm happy to introduce Jill Thompson, Senior Staff Geologist at QEP Resources. Jill has been with QEP since 2015 and is a part of the company's geologist team in the Permian Basin, where the company has been executing TIG-style development across its acreage position in the Northern Midland Basin. She previously was with Newfield Exploration for roughly two years, where she worked on their UNSA asset she began her career with Shell Oil Company in 2006, so without further ado, please help me welcome Jill Thompson to the podium. Thanks, Emily, for that introduction, and thanks to Heart Energy um, for inviting me to share with you QEP's tank development strategy. Several of my colleagues have already mentioned similar strategies, and I'll just continue on that. So first, I just want to start with a high-level overview. Um, simultaneous operations of tightly spaced um, horizontal wellbores are the inevitable future in unconventionals. Um, and this next wave has already begun in the Permian, where operators are transitioning from parent wells to increased well um, densities. But the development of increased well densities in a parent-child methodology commonly results in less effective um, stimulate a rock volume of the child wells, increase production downtime, and drilling hazards. So the goal of our study was to maximize the value through adopting development strategies that realize higher well densities while avoiding these parent-child pitfalls. The solution is what we call tank development, and it's aimed at the optimization of development operations for tightly spaced and stacked stratigraphic intervals. And the result of our tank development strategy not only mitigates 
um, the pitfalls of parent-child development, but it also increases the peak asset value and the well count at which this peak occurs. So here's the outline for the presentation. After a quick introduction, I'll go into parent-child development, or what I'll refer to as non-tank development, and our associated case studies. And then I'll go into what is tank development, and then the rest of the presentation is just going to be evidence that shows that tank development does allow for increased near-well bore complexity, which then allows for increased well densities. So the study area for this is going to be the Andrews-Martin County border, indicated by the black dash box. Um, in particular, we're going to concentrate on the Sprayberry Shale, which is the formation right above the Dean. It's about 350 feet thick, it's oil rich, and it consists of silicate and calcareous mudstones, siltstones, carbonates, and fine sandstones. So one of the biggest questions we have in the industry is what is the optimal density? And there's two ends of the spectrum. Drilling not enough wells drains your reserves, so it reduces your MPV, and creates poor pressure management for future infills. And on the other hand, drilling too many wells results in overcapitalization. But regardless where you fall on the spectrum, you're subject to frac hits. So now we'll step into the problem statement, which is frac hits. Um, so everyone here, I'm sure, has experience with frac hits. Most of my colleagues have been mentioning them. Um, I'm going to just explain in a cartoon what frac hits, how we envision frac hits at QEP. So we have a shotgun plot here with the circle being the parent well. And production from the parent well creates a zone of lower pore pressure, or what we refer to as a pressure sink, as well as changes in geomechanical properties around it. And then after some time, an operator will come in and drill a well offsetting this parent well, which we refer to as a child well, indicated by the star. And the child well simulation will preferentially grow towards the pressure sink. This preferential growth can create a compromised stimulated rock volume of the child well and affect the production of the parent well. So the child well SRV should be more similar to a parent well, but instead it's accessing less unique rock and therefore will most likely see lower production. So during parent-child development, wells are typically brought online immediately after completions in order to maximize value, while continuous frac operations occur only a short distance away. Um, our first case study is DSU A, which has Sprayberry Shale wells at 10 wells per mile, um, offsetting two parent wells indicated by the stars. And wells one and two were completed first and then immediately brought online. The hydraulic cloud kind of drawn around these well bores are based on our current understanding from frac modeling and microseismic efforts. These wells were online, you can see the, um, the rate plot, um, for about 34 days prior to the completion of the offset wells. Then we came in and we completed wells three, four, and five, and we saw immediate growth to the existing wells that were only online for about 30 days. So wells one and two experienced 36 days of lower production, and they never reached their estimated pre-frac hit trends. And this isn't really an isolated event in our experience. Loss in production occurs when parent-child development was deployed. Some wells can return to pre-frac hit trends, and other wells fail to reach these trends. We've also executed one horizontal infill program to just better understand the economics of coming back for stranded reserves. So in this case, our, we have two infill wells in the Sprayberry Shale, indicated by the green circles. They're about 150 feet above seven, producing Sprayberry Shale wells, and 650 feet below four, producing middle Sprayberry wells. At the time of completion of these two infill wells, the 11 existing wells produced about three million barrels of total fluids over about a year and a half. So when we completed these two infill wells, seven of the 11 existing wells um, experienced a frac hit. Um, pr production on these wells decreased anywhere from 30 to 100%, and some of these wells never returned to pre-frac hit trends. In addition to that, the infill wells had about a 50% reduction in EUR. So this really emphasized the need to us to better understand the optimal horizontal spacing in a complex stratigraphic environment in an effort to kind of balance stranded economic oil and maximizing value. So again, the impacts of parent-child non-tank development is loss of production on the parent wells, long-term production impact on the parent wells, and poor hydraulic stimulation of the child wells. 
So to overcome these fracked pitfalls, our team's goal was to optimize the development strategy rather than use a mitigation technique such as injecting fluids into the system, which led to the creation of our multidisciplinary tank development approach. So what is tank development? Tank development is essentially the exploitation of a volume of rock at one time to maximize value. This is accomplished through the detailed planning and integration of drilling completions, drought timing, and putting wells on production. Ideally, you would drill and complete and then bring all wells online at the same time in a block of rock um, to minimize the effects of frack hits, but that's not really practical due to the time commitment and company metrics. So our team created what we call a pressure wall um, to try and find that balance between optimal development and production goals. So the best way to go through tank development is with an animation. On the left, we have a block diagram view, which is a vertical cross-section. And each of these colored polygons represents wells drilled from the same surface location. Um, so in the dark um, gray, you might have two wells drilled in the Sprayberry Shale, a well in the Wolf Camp A, and a well in the Wolf Camp B. And then on the right, we have a map view just indicating the horizontal wells. And the development direction in this case is to the right. So first we start drilling our plan wells. Once we're done drilling, we move to the next pad. And the pad is just left behind that's now drilled but uncompleted is what we call our drilling buffer. And this minimizes interference between drilling and completing wells. Once we think this buffer is large enough, then we can start completing wells on the other side. Prior to the implementation of this buffer, we experienced large amount of drilling frackets at large vertical and lateral distances. So now we're completing a pad. Once that's done, it moves to the next pad. And the pad it just left behind is what we refer to as our pressure wall, indicated by the purple on the maps. So a pressure wall is a volume of reservoir that's now above pore pressure due to the energy and fluids of the completions. And it acts as a barrier to frack hits and preferential growth between completing and producing wells. So once this pressure wall is established, then we can start bringing wells online on one side where we're still completing on the other side of this pressure wall. And then we simultaneously keep bringing wells online. So I'm going to walk through this one more time. Tank development is basically choreography at the surface, such that the drilling rigs are followed by the completion crews, which create a pressure wall, and are in turn followed by the simultaneous production of all wells. Okay, so now we'll go into the execution case studies and our results from tank development. Our first tank development test was in DSUB, where we have Sprayberry Shale wells at 16 wells per mile. And these were completed in a top-down manner, meaning that the top bench was completed first, followed by the bottom bench, and then all five wells were brought online at the same time. And early production on the 16-well density test with tank development shows similar performance to the eight wells per mile non-tank development. Then we have DSU-C, which was our first attempt at continuous tank development across six pads, utilizing a pressure wall. We have an average of 16 wells density in the Sprayberry Shale, and we also included wells at density in the middle Sprayberry. Um, development direction in this case is gonna be to the left of the screen. So we start drilling, and then once we believe that our drilling buffer is large enough, we can start completing wells to minimize frack interference. Once those wells are completed, the pad it left behind is now waiting on drill out, or what we refer to will be a pressure wall. And then we continue development. Once that pressure wall exists, we can turn wells online while we're completing on the other side of it. And we collected pressure and microseismic data on this example to support our tank development concept. So again, we're completing in the green wells with our pressure wall in that um, cloud-like image, and then the red wells are producing. And we're gonna zoom in on wells one, two, three, and four. So here we have pump intake pressure, water production, and oil production. And I colored in the time at which we were completing on the opposite side of the pressure wall. So normally for pump intake pressure and water production, you see a sharp increase with frack hits and oil production, um, a sharp decrease. And in this case, we don't see any evidence of frack hits, um, which indicates that we have had success on our pressure wall. Um, and we have since had multiple more examples of this same thing. 
In addition, on the same wells, one, two, three, and four, um, we collected microseismic um, using a surface array, and we collected moment tensor inversion. Um, we'll look at this through time. Well one was completed first, two, three, and four. And as tank development continues, there's an increase in event count and moment magnitude, suggesting that there's evidence of breaking more rock as tank development um, advances. So you can see more events associated with wells three and four rather than one and two. And then if we want to look at a graph form, you can see exponential increase as tank development advances. And then because we collected moment tensor inversion, we can, we can create a modeled um, propped SRV around our well bores. If you're interested in how that was created, I have it on the right side. But for time, I just want to concentrate on the heat map. So the heat map indicates the propped volume, or you can think about it as um, fracture complexity. All these wells were completed exactly the same. And you can see that the propped SRV is increasingly compact from wells one to four, with smaller heights and lateral lengths suggesting increased near world war complexity as tank development advances. And now we'll look at production. So the plot we have here is a rate normalized pressure drop. The slope of the line is equivalent to the inverse product of the surface area of a well's fracture network multiplied by the square root of permeability. So a shallower slope indicates greater near well bore complexity. And on this plot, we have DSU A, non-tank development at 10 wells per mile, and DSU B, tank development at 16 wells per mile. And we can see that the tank development wells are more productive despite their higher densities. So these diagnostics suggest greater complexity in the fracture network of tank developed wells. So what does this mean when we roll it up at an asset level? So the classic approach to optimizing the value of an asset is to perform a number of density tests and observe how a single well EURs and economics degrade as a function of density. On here, we the red squares are our non-tank development density tests. Um, and using this PV trend, the value of a DSU can be quantified as a function of density multiplied by the number of wells at said density. And that results in this DSU BFIT PV10 plot, where the parabolic peak indicates the density at which the DSU is maximized. So any less than this, you're under-realizing the value, and any more than this, you have overcapitalization. So what effect does tank development have on this similar DSU profile? So the principal contribution of tank development is that it produces greater complexity than the non-tank peers. And a consequence of this increase in complexity is that it changes the performance degradation as a function of density. So I have the same plot here with non-tank development in red, and then plotted the green two density tests we have. And we can see that the tank developed wells exhibit performance and value uptick at density. And when we roll this up to a DSU level, um, the uptick in complexity from tank development increases the optimal density and increases the total value that could be realized from a given block of rock. So we can look over at the bottom plot and you have the non-tank development ideal density versus the green tank development density. And in the case of one of our reservoirs, this tank development approach doubled the potential asset value. So I did want to note that this isn't just a theory or something that we just talk about. We have been executing this since mid-2017, and we have more than 160 producing wells using tank development. Um, and we've also tested six new zones during the implementation of tank. So to conclude, tank development essentially eliminates frackets and parent-child well interactions. Um, supercharging completions produces greater fracture complexity, and more complex fracture networks lead to higher supportable densities. Tank development doubled the optimal density and the total value of one reservoir. And we have continuous optimizations will be further achieved through field tests, data acquisitions, and reservoir modeling. We're continuously updating this process depending where we are in the field and how many different formations we're drilling. And while this presentation concentrated more on the subsurface, there's a lot of surface benefits associated with tank development as well, um, such as centralized facilities. And with that, I just want to thank QEP for letting me share this and the rest of our team, because this was a team project. 
So thank you. Thank you, Jill. Our last speaker for this panel will be uh, Will Hickey, co-CEO of Colgate Energy. Will helped co-found Colgate in 2015 with equity commitments for management Pearl in plus Pearl Energy Investments and Natural Gas Partners. The company is based in Midland, Texas with operations focused in the Delaware Basin in Reeves County, Texas and Eddy and Lee Counties, New Mexico. Prior to starting Colgate, Will worked for Pioneer Natural Resources, where he rotated through numerous engineering positions and worked as the senior business analyst for former CEO Tim Dove. So with that, please help me welcome Will Hickey to the podium. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm Will Hickey. Uh, I just want to thank the, the Heart Energy Group and this conference. I've been coming here for many years, and I think this is one of the, the best conferences, so I'm uh, excited to be a part of it, and thank you all for having me. Uh, so I figured I'd take this time, I don't know, I think that some in the room, and I'd hope most have heard of or know something about Colgate, but I figured I'd take most of this time to kind of explain who we are and how, uh, for, a, for a little bit of a change, how Colgate's dealing with the new uh, cash flow focused environment. Uh, I think we've heard a lot about that today and I'm gonna stick with the theme. Uh, so we formed Colgate in 2015, which was, if you can remember, one of the more down markets we've had in the last five or 10 years uh, with, a, with a focus that we could take advantage of the down market and stay very, very focused on the core of the, of the best basins. Uh, we, we have a company motto that we, we do not like to take geologic risk. We like to stay very focused and, and use our land strategy to, uh, to put together good positions in, in the core of the basin. Uh, we kind of as the success of the company played out over the first years, we continued to upsize the, those commitments with both Pearl and Natural Gas Partners. And so as it stands today, we've grown the company to uh, 31,500 net acres, which is comprised about two thirds in Texas and Reeves County and a third in New Mexico, mostly in Eddy County. Uh, we've grown the production to over 12,000 barrels a day net. We've drilled 17 wells and six different benches. Uh, 12 of those wells are online and now we're projected to have a $200 million of EBITDA over the next 12 months. Uh, kind of when we formed the company, as you can imagine, we were, we were in a time where, where all of our peers and the success stories around the same time before us had, had laid out a very proven and consistent model for private equity-backed companies, and, and we did not plan on deviating from that model. Uh, we were gonna lease and buy in the core of the basin. We were gonna spend numerous hours and time trying to consolidate, put it together for long lateral development. We were going to drill a couple of wells on each bench to prove that the rock was as good as, as the offset well results, and then we were going to sell it as, as the publics were in, in need of inventory and, and happy to buy acreage. Uh, this is the position the, on the, I guess, left side of the page is our 23,000 acre Texas position. Uh, we've colored it just to keep it kind of simplify the story by the year in which we acquired it. And, and, and the main point to take across for both the Texas and New Mexico position is that this didn't happen overnight. Uh, I think that kind of as you think of private equity backed companies and, and their approach to putting together positions, you either have to focus on you know, the ability to buy smaller leases and aggregate a position over time, or you have to take geologic risk and, and buy on the edge of the basin and hope that your, your technical team and, and geologic attack on the, on the position is one that, that works out and, and that you can kind of prove others wrong. Uh, and, and as it was for Colgate, we, we stuck to, to our original plan. We're going to stay in the core. We're going to do the blocking and tackling, and we're going to put these positions together over time. Uh, I do think it's really cool how it has played out over time that, that you can see that even as you look at all of the long lateral drilling units we've put together, both in New Mexico and Texas, that very few of them happened within the same year. It's a lot of you acquired one section in one year and you put together the next section to make it a two mile lateral the next year or even the year after that. So we had, at this point in time, it was kind of early 2017 and, and the, the markets were still relatively good and we had cored up the position and so it was time to appraise it. Uh, so we, we picked up a rig and drilled our first two horizontal wells in early to mid 2017. Uh, we drilled two relatively shorter lateral Wolf Camp A wells, we figured that better safe than sorry, kind of, we're just trying to prove the acreage, and we drilled two wells that I would say exceeded even our P10 expectations. Uh, both of these wells for one mile laterals made consistently over 1,000 barrels a day of oil, you know, low GOR, low, low water oil ratio. Uh, we drilled them 
relatively cheap for a kind of one-off wells. And, and these, these IRRs on the bottom of the page are not, this isn't ratioed up for lateral length or for future DNC costs. This is the actual return we have realized on these wells. Both wells have been online for about a year and a half. We, both wells, we kind of on a well level, half cycle economics paid for themselves in the first year. And, and both wells have you know, more than covered the all of our kind of infrastructure, et cetera, associated with these wells. Uh, but so at this point in time, we had kind of followed our plan to the T. We had leased, consolidated, we had blocked it up for long lateral drilling units. We had drilled two wells. We had infrastructure in place. And so, you know, next step, let's go sell this thing. So uh, James and my partner and I, we were, we were excited and, and we decided it would, you know, it was about time to sell. But unbeknownst to us, you know, the, as we kind of entered a market, it was a very daunting time to be selling a company. Uh, and I think this is very consistent with what, what you're seeing and what you've heard from all the other presenters. But, but we're not in a world of, of buying undeveloped leasehold, especially undeveloped expiring leasehold anymore. Uh, you know, this is a, a slide that I, I borrowed from RBC, but I think this tells the story very well that kind of in 2016 and, and even Q1 of 2017, you had public companies issuing equi equity at four to $10 billion a quarter. Most of this equity was issued to buy private equity backed assets for additional inventory or even other publics. Uh, and then right around Q2 17, this just came to an abrupt halt. The public investors, as again, what, what you've been hearing most of the day today, are very focused on cash flow and returns, and you know, nobody needs to be buying their 15th year of inventory. Uh, I also found it kind of if you match up on the bottom table here that also as you went, you know, 2016, publics were selling 34% of the assets in the market. Fast forward to today, publics are selling you know the majority of the assets in the market. So kind of with this, with this backdrop in this new world, uh, we, we, we kind of rethought what we were doing and decided that, that we were going to look at this as an opportunity to really grow the business into something that was more what, what the world was looking for and, and really what our investors are looking for too. Uh, you know, Parker talked about it, others have talked about it, that, that we're in the business of, of, of making money for our investors and there's more than one way to do that. We don't, we don't have to sell an acreage position to do that. So kind of as we, as we thought of it, and I call this the, the new private equity life cycle, and it may, this may oversimplify it, but, but there's a few more steps than just lease, buy, grow, consolidate, and appraise. And kind of as we think of specific to our position, those steps looked like we need to HBP this leasehold. We need to you know, get the infrastructure in place, get the midstream takeaway in place, and then ultimately we need to transition into full development. Uh, kind of as I think about full development and, and specific to us, what, what really needed to happen before we could transition into, and when I say full development, large scale, large pad, whether it be cube style or tank style development, we had to, we had to knock off a few things ahead of time. Uh, first, we had, to, we had to really appraise the position, not just in the primary bench with short laterals, but we needed to drill two mile laterals, we needed to test all the benches, because as you, as you take into account parent-child effects and, and kind of the optimal full development of an asset, you really need to ha have a good understanding of what, what each horizon really can do. And, and so that, you, that way you can understand what benches you need to hold and then how you want to attack full development. Uh, we needed to HBP it. You know, we, we don't have the, uh, the capital budgets to pick up the amount of rigs it would take to, to drill our entire position in cube-style development today. So we needed to HBP it so that we could take the time and, and use our existing cash flow and, and revolver to finance a, a more large scale, long lead time development program. Uh, we had to grow the production in the EBITDA to get it in a place that we, we had the ability to finance a six well, eight well, 10 well pad before you see $1 of, of, of revenue coming back. Uh, and then in doing this, we had to do it with a returns oriented focus. We're not going to, to grow production and build this company without focusing on what matters most, which is returning dollars back to the, to the equity owners. And, and so to do that, we had to go ahead and build infrastructure in ahead of time. I mean, th these wells move so much fluid that if you don't have oil takeaway, gas takeaway, and water takeaway on pipe, it's very difficult to make money. Uh, and then in doing all of this, I, I would say that we, we as a company noticed that as you move more towards full development, it creates a lot of additional opportunities of ways to, to take advantage of your, of your asset base. And this comes with, you know, buying minerals ahead of the drill bit, uh, building out gathering companies, et cetera. So kind of as uh, transitioning into the, the further appraisal, we went back and drilled, I guess, seven or six more Wolf Camp A wells in addition to the two original. Uh, these wells were not just one mile wells. We've drilled 
a few 7,500-foot laterals. The majority of them are 10,000-foot laterals, and we've drilled two 12,000-foot laterals. Uh, if you look at this page, I, I think what stands out to me more than anything is how consistent these wells are. As you look at wells all but well four, one through eight, these are, we have wells on here. Well number five is a 12,500-foot lateral that is being normalized down to a two-mile lateral. So it's, you know, on the page shows 250,000 barrels of oil cumed, when in reality the wells cumed 330,000 barrels in 160 days. Th these wells have consistently outperformed our expectations and, and continued to kind of meet our original wells on a barrel per foot basis as we've scaled from 4,500 foot laterals to 12,500 foot laterals. Uh, the, the, the Wolf Camp A in this area is a, is a great mix of, of high oil cuts, 70, 75% oil cuts with enough gas to really move the, flume, the, move the column of fluid. Uh, the, the wells free flow, of, of the eight wells we have on this slide, there's only two that are on artificial lift. The other six are, are still free flowing up casing, five and a half inch casing. You know, one to two years into their production cycle. It's extremely low LOE, uh, you know, low water oil ratio. The, the wells are, are about two and a half to one water oil ratio, so there's not a lot of disposal costs associated with them. Uh, the, the Wolf Camp A has really continued to outperform and, and really helped kind of kickstart this transition into a, a, more, a company more focused on making money by selling oil. Uh, and so we were you know, very, very lucky and excited to see that the Wolf Camp A kind of continuing to perform across our entire Texas position. Uh, as I mentioned, it's not just about the A, though. As you think about cube development and full development of a company, you need to test the other benches, too. Uh, so we've drilled three Wolf Camp B wells. Uh, two of these B wells were drilled directly underneath an A, and so we have a, it's a little bit of a parent-child test, I guess you could say, and, and, and early results are great. Uh, the B wells on here are, I, I don't like cube plots unless you have some relative way to compare them because it's easy to get lost in the numbers. So I've left our our kind of peer Wolf Camp A type curves, which are on the previous slide on, on all of these slides, just as a, as a comparison. So these are our three B wells as compared to the, the Wolf Camp A type curve in the area. And I would say that they compete as well as anything. Uh, again, you, you have a little bit of a well number one on here is a 12,000 foot lateral that is being scaled down by 20% to this, this 10,000 foot lateral normalization. And, and the B wells are equally as good. These are wells that are, you know, cuming. 30, 40, 50,000 barrels of oil in the first month. They are still relatively low water oil ratio, extremely high pressure. These wells will free flow for years. Uh, and, and our early flowback wells doing, you know, it's, a, it's 800 barrels a day this morning on, on day 18 of flowback. So we are very, very excited. I would say more than just the prolific nature of the A and B, but the consistency. And, and I think consistency is incredibly important as you, as you look at a kind of returns focused uh, development plan. You need to the consistency is incredibly important. Uh, lastly, we tested a Wolf Camp C well. So this would be, this is about 600 feet by TVD deeper than our B target. And, and this would be probably the biggest surprise of the, of the bunch as the company. Again, uh, you know, this is a two mile lateral, so very little normalization going on here. We've, the well's made about 135,000 barrels of oil in 100 days, still doing 1,100 barrels a day. And, and if you look at the shape of this cum curve, it's, you can tell that this well is, is very flat. It's been a kind of 11 to 1300 barrel a day well for, for 100 days straight, and, and we're very, very excited about the C uh, as, we, as we kind of think of our Reeves County position. So early appraisal, we love the A, we love the B, we love the C. So how do we, how do we go about holding all of our acreage all the way down to the C while not creating parent-child issues for, for us as we come back to really drill large-scale pads. And this is just a quick example to walk through one of our units and how we've done it. Uh, if you look at the far right, I've got a, a gun barrel view, and then obviously the, the 1,280-acre unit. But, but basically, we, we start on one of the, this, this particular unit, we started on the east side. We drilled a Wolf Camp A and Wolf Camp B stack, 330 feet off the lease line. And then in about six months, we'll come back and drill a third bone spring Wolf Camp A stack on the west side of the lease line, which leaves about a 4,500-acre fairway in the middle that we will come back in time to when, when we transition the company to full development. And, and this is our kind of current solution to the how do we, how do we minimize parent-child issues as we HBP leasehold and, get, and position the company to be financially stable and, and have all the correct infrastructure in place to, to really go mow down our locations. Uh, this is our net production over time. Uh, the, you can kind of see that the company, this helps speak to kind of the company's timeline, but you know, we, we drilled our first two appraisal wells in, in early or late 2017, 
And then we picked up one rig sometime around the April, May, June timeframe and a second rig right around October. Uh, I think that kind of as you look at this production, that the, the, the big takeaways are is, is that when you're drilling very prolific wells with a two rig program, you can grow production really quickly. Uh, and, and we've been fortunate that the, the prolific nature of these wells has allowed us to, to, to grow this production strictly off of a, just a typical conventional RBL. We haven't had to dip, dip into the equity funds to grow production to this point. And, and the ramp's not slowing down. With, with two rigs, you can, you can see the kind of trajectory of the next three or four months, but you can continue to grow production really quickly with two rigs. Uh, and then cash flow, that's the, that's the point of this whole thing, is, is cash flow, and, and I would say that we are hyper aware and very focused on maximizing cash flow at every turn. Uh, our, we, we track it very closely, we, we watch all of our expenses, and, and we really the biggest needle mover is that we continue to gr drill great wells. Uh, we're currently, you know, we've grown our EBITDA for, from about 50 million a year to 200 million a year, and we're projecting that with a two rig program we'll be cash flow positive sometime uh, late this year. Uh, this is in incredibly important, not just as we think of the, the goal, the ultimate goal to, to eventually to pay dividends, to uh, do some type of dividend recap to, to return dollars back to shareholder, but it's also important as we think about how we're gonna finance the next stage of development of this company. Uh, we, with cash flow, with positive cash flow comes, comes a lot of flexibility around how to, how to finance the ultimate development as we transition to full pad development. So kind of as we do think about full pad development, what, what are our goals? And I would say our, our, our main goals is, it, first and foremost, is that we want to continue to drill very robust wells. Very robust wells can help solve lots of problems. You, you, don't, you don't run into to G and A per BOE problems or to LOE per BOE problems if you're producing a lot of BOEs. And, and, and that's our primary goal, and, and we, we continue to focus on it. I, I heard it from, from Justin about Devin, that they, they spend all their time focused on the best wells because that's what drives the value. Uh, and, and I would expect to continue to see more of the same, you know, a just kind of back of the envelope math. If we drill a, a 10,000 foot two mile well for, for $12 million and it, and it generates a PDP PV10 of 40 million, you know, that's a, that's a very, very lucrative return and, and you can really ramp EBITDA and value quickly doing so. Uh, I think you'll see, continue to see us be active in the mineral and, and royalty space ahead of our drill bits, uh, taking advantage of the proprietary information that we have as it goes to our drill schedule. Uh, and then we really have to install the infrastructure and put the right uh, people in place to, to facilitate full-scale development. Uh, you cannot have on-site storage, you can't have tanks, you need to have everything on pipe when you're going to really start to drill megapads. Uh, we're fortunate that we have great midstream partners, we've partnered with Oryx, Eagle Claw, and Waterbridge on the oil, gas, and water side, and they've been, they've been outstanding on, on staying ahead of us and making sure that we have everything we need to transition to full-scale development. We built out our own in-field gathering system, uh, it's a Colgate-owned gathering, we gather everything to big central tank batteries that helps kind of ensure that that we have the oil, gas, and water where we need it to be. Uh, and so what's next? I think that, you know, no surprise, but we're gonna continue to finish our appraisal program. We're gonna test a few other benches, the second bone spring, the third bone spring. We're gonna drill our first appraisal wells in New Mexico later this year. Uh, we're gonna finish our HBP program. We're currently 75% held by production and expect to be almost finished sometime this year. Uh, we're gonna continue to grow cash flow. You know, we're, we're currently almost a cash flow positive and would expect to reach that sometime later this year. Uh, and then we're gonna transition to large scale development. I'd say we as a company and our investors are very excited about the potential of this asset with large scale development and so that's what we're gonna do. Uh, so that's Colgate, I uh, appreciate the time. Thank you all for listening and I'll see you all at the Q&A.